Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I talk to my guests about the five things that they would like to put into a time capsule. They can choose four things that they really treasure, but they also pick one thing from their life that they would like to reject, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My special guest in this episode is the writer, poet, TV and film producer, Henry Norble, founder of the Manchester Poetry Festival and recipient of a special BAFTA for services to television. He was the co-founder of Baby Cow Productions, which he set up with Steve Coogan in 1999 and managed until his retirement in 2016. In that time, Baby Cow was responsible for hundreds of television programmes and films, including the wonderful film Philomena, Gavin and Stacey, Uncle, Red Dwarf, The Mighty Boosh, Marion and Jeff, Nighty Night and Alan Partridge, among many others. Henry also co-wrote and script-edited the Mrs. Merton Show and the Royal Family. He's now back on the road performing his poetry, as he did many years ago when he toured with Pulp. It is an amazing life, but let's find out the four things that Henry treasures and would like to keep safe, and the one thing he'd like to banish from his life, as we listen to his time capsule. My first question would be, does anybody still call you Pete? Good question. I've got three sisters, yeah. uh, and they call me Pete, but my wife calls me Henry, uh, my son calls me Dad, um, <laughs> and uh, everybody else calls me Henry. Uh, um, yeah. It is quite strange when somebody calls me Pete, so as I say, uh, uh, it'll be one of my three sisters. You can really place people from that sort of thing, can't you? If anybody ever calls me Mickey, yeah. I know they know me from school. 
Yes, of course. Uh, it's quite strange, isn't it, that um, they say that you take on a personality of a name. I hope so, because I always <laughs> found uh, Peter, um, I did think he called himself Peter Doubt. Uh, what I want to say, <laughs> but uh, I, I, yeah, Peter was supposed to be the Rock, uh, and yeah. uh, Henry is uh, the King apparently. So uh, strictly speaking, I am Elvis, the King of Rock. <laughs> Perfect. That's it. Just be careful on the toilet. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yes. So we're going to chat about five things that you've chosen to put into a time capsule that I've got here. Look at it. Isn't it beautiful? It's gorgeous, yes. And so big. <laughs> <laughs> Will it need to be? That's the question. Uh, you've chosen five things, so I'm very keen to find out what they are. Oh, good. Well, the, the first one, um, I'll do them in sort of chronological order. Um, uh, the first one is a mince pie from <laughs> when I was a kid. So um, up to the age of about eight, uh, I lived in uh, what was affectionately termed the slum district of Nottingham, which is the St. Anne's area. And um, the thing I remember most from it is my mum at Christmas used to cook uh, a big mince pie. Now, not a single little mince pie, because you've got to, the, the, the pastry mince ratio <laughs> in that is quite dense. Yeah. It was a big mince pie. So if you think about it, when you, when you caught a slice of big mince pie, your pastry to mince ratio, uh, um, apart from, you know, the, the end bit, is quite full on <laughs> with mince. There's a sort of a richness to that. And as I say, because um, we were quite poor at the time, uh, five kids, and uh, we lived in a terraced house, there's a sort of, uh, I say, a, a luxury to, to a, a mince pie hmm. that um, always cheers me up. Yeah. So was your mum really dedicated? Did she make the mince herself? Uh, uh, yeah, well, you see, back in those days, you didn't get everything made up. Like, like it would be short course pastry, mm. but she'd make the short course pastry. She didn't get like a, you know, you do these days, short course, I can't even say it, short crust pastry. Uh, I'm buffeting, uh, Michael. Uh, um, uh, short crust pastry that you buy at the shop, you'd have to make it up yourself. And so th there was a, a nice, uneven quality to it that uh, everything nowadays if you look at the fruit and and uh, and, the, and the pies and everything it's all perfect isn't it yeah and uh, i love the fact that you get burnt bits and you know sort of straggly bits and and whatever and that was part of the joy of it for me yeah it had that feeling of uh, of real life as opposed to we, we buy in nowadays into this idea of perfection mm. which of course you know Almost all the time, and nothing is perfection. No, only you and I could achieve that. Well, yes, mm. uh, with this particular podcast, indeed, absolutely, as we're about to prove. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I do. I do like that um, sort of homeliness, and of course, once you have eaten a, a, a good uh, mince pie, you know, it has a, a nice, warm feeling mm. to it. You know, and you feel sated. So, and, and I would have more than one slice back in in those days. You know. <laughs> They used to call me Swoop, my mum and dad, because, you know, I'd, I'd hover around the dinner table. <laughs> so how many pieces were it cut into then? So you've got five of you, five kids, two adults. Do you know, beyond my pieces, Michael, I wasn't really that bothered. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, I, I suppose it's, it's seven of us in all, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, eight, eight pieces, so I'd have two. Yeah, there you are, you see. <laughs> it had to be an even number and you went for the extra one. Yeah. <laughs> I do love mince pies, and they do throw you right back, don't they, every time you eat one. And nowadays, of course, everybody makes mince pies as if they've been handmade, 
So if you buy them in, yeah. you know, in Waitrose, they'll be deliberately made that way. You can buy them now from, you know, sort of September, can't you? Yeah. Uh, and which, you know, I, I find this this whole idea of starting Christmas to a, I, I like to have Christmas on Christmas Eve and finish it on Boxing Day, just get it done. In fact, for, for the past 20 years, we don't really do Christmas. Um, we we do a very Christmas light version, shall I say? <laughs> I, I do enjoy uh, a few of the attributes of Christmas, but I like to get it over with. Yeah, I rather like the sense of of almost that Dickensian thing of uh, closing the shop yeah. slightly early on Christmas Eve, and then off you will go with a tree over your shoulder. I like that idea a lot. Yes, yes, and uh, you just have half the day off. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Scrooge, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'd have been a very good Bob Cratchit, to be honest with you. Yeah, I was making rather merry last night, sir. Well, um, I think I'm going to put a great big mince pie in there, cut into eight pieces, and yours is clearly the spare one. Well, two. So one, one Michier and, and the spare one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when I open this time capsule, I might be a bit hungry, might be a bit peckish. <laughs> I bet nobody's thought of that before, have they? No. So basically, open it up and it has all the things you need. Um, I should imagine your next item will be a lavatory. Uh, no. Oh, okay. No. Uh, I mean, back, back then, of course, the lavatories were, you know, you had to go out the door mm. for the lavatory because they're back-to-back housing. You, you went out the door. It's quite weird, isn't it? Because if you, if you speak to people about it, it sounds like that we should be dead. It sounds like it's it's from a from a bygone century. Yeah, it doesn't actually sound like it's in our lifetime. But yeah, so so we'd we'd bathe in front of the fire, and then uh, at the age of um, eight, we moved. They knocked it down. It's quite funny actually because I think we were the only people in our road. Yeah. I must have been 100 hours in the road, who actually owned the house. Why, why my mum and dad thought to buy a slum? I, I have no idea. <laughs> so everybody else's door was uh, green, mm. but my mum was sick of green, so ours was pink. So you could see ours, you know, from space, basically. <laughs> and they knocked it down, and we moved to a council estate, because uh, obviously we didn't get a lot of money from it, and we couldn't afford another house. So we moved to a council estate, and there we had a proper big bathroom. So at the time, I thought a councillor. I thought it was, you know, like a palace. So we had we had a bathroom. But this is a strange thing. I don't know whether you've come across this, uh, Michael. But uh, downstairs, the toilet wasn't actually in the house. It was right next to the back door. Yeah. So it was like in the eighties that they didn't trust you to shit inside uh, <laughs> if you were working class. You know, they, they were trying to lure you from from down the garden to just next to the back door. <laughs> I mean, you won't, you won't build a house like that anymore, would you? No, no. I mean, because often, quite often, that back door is also next to the kitchen. So the last thing well, you want was, is... Yeah, right yeah. next to the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. You're shitting right next to where you cook your food. That's a great idea. Yeah, it, it, uh, bonkers, bonkers when you think about it. Of course, we had a, an immersion eater. Uh, uh, not that we ever switched it on. I mean, that was <laughs> you switched that on. That was like DEFCON three, <laughs> and uh, French windows we had in in this uh, in this place. Oh wow, what luxury! Do you know it seemed at the time? See, people turn their nose up at council uh, houses, but it seemed at the time, having gone from a place where you know the, the only garden we had was you know growing on the walls to a place where you had a front garden and a back garden. Mm. You know, it, it seemed a huge jump culturally. You know, at the time, uh, my ambition uh, as a kid was really just to play football. Yeah. So I, I would go out onto the road. Now, we lived on a crescent. 
So no cars came up so we could play football on the road. So we, we you'd play with all the kids. So, you know, it could be 50 mm. uh, kids. Uh, and um, if that's all that wanted to play. And uh, you'd have two parked cars would be the goal. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd just play for, yeah. No, no idea of uh, time. You'd just play till you got shouted in for your team. Yeah. You know, the last two that got shouted in for the team, they'd say, uh, next goal wins. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody ever kept score. So, you know, it could, it could have been 300 to 250. You, you, you didn't really know. Um, but for me, time seemed to stand still when I was playing football. Mm. I, I sort of think it's a, it's a bit like dancing for lads, that you can use your body and you you get very much um, in the moment as, as you do with dancing. And uh, very healthy, of course. Mm. So I, I I would lose myself in uh, in football as a kid. I wasn't particularly good at it. But, <laughs> no. Uh, no, me neither. Yeah. It was a very annoying thing, though, wasn't it, when that call came? I mean, if you were on the Crescent, it would come from your mum saying, you know, Peter, yeah. come in. Dinner's <laughs> ready. And that usually meant yeah. lunch. Oh, did, yeah, dinner was lunch and tea was your, your evening meal, which was always half past six. Yeah. <laughs> After the news had regaled you with tales of Vietnam, which was the, the, the backdrop to uh, my early, uh, early teens. Well, I remember playing football in the summer because our house was next to the wreck. So we oh, yeah. would play there, great hordes of kids, and slowly people would be called in. And my mum would walk round to the entrance of the wreck, which was only about 50 yards from our house. And because we'd always be incredibly hot and sweaty, she used to let us leave one thing. Oh, no, we weren't allowed to leave anything. You see, uh, it was quite formulaic, my, uh, my, my food at that time. So you'd basically, during the week, you'd have two things. So you'd have like uh, bacon and tomatoes, uh, sausage and egg, uh, beans on toast. And then on Sunday you would have more than two things. You would have a, you know, a big spread. And then for Sunday tea, it was always a, a bit of the leftovers of the meat, uh, you know, some sort of a salad type thing, <laughs> uh, often tinned uh, salmon, and then tinned fruit yeah. for afters. Carnation cream? Oh, yeah. Evaporated milk. Yeah. I, I, suppose that's the, uh, I suppose that's the same. I mean, pineapple chunks was my favourite. Right? <laughs> uh, not, not rings. That was just for gammon, which is posh bacon, isn't it? Uh, but uh, pineapple chunks. But the, what, what we used to get sometimes, which I used to eat, was um, the mixed fruit. Do you, do you remember the mixed fruit in oh, tins? Yeah. Cling peaches was the main constitution of it. And, uh, and, and the, even the word cling, <laughs> uh, you know, cling, it, it's like, like it's clinging to your palate. Um, the cherry content... Because I'm I'm very much about percentages, yeah. And, and the cherry content was possibly one percent, <laughs> and quite often had a stone in it. Oh yes, the, the other the other bit really, which was about a third of it, was uh, pears. Mm. So it'd be basically peaches, pears, and then a very little bit, and you'd, you'd fish them out, wouldn't you? Very little bit. And strangely enough, the the tins of salmon used to have them little round white bones in them as well. Yeah, you, you had to fish out. And I always used to think, why don't they fish out the, the white bones, put them in with the cling peaches <laughs> and put the cherries in with the salmon and I'd just eat the salmon. Because <laughs> it all gets mixed up when it's, when it's in your stomach anyway, doesn't it? Yeah. So you, all through your youth, Sunday dinner would be meat and your veg and your potatoes yeah. and then you would have a pudding. Yeah, not much of a pudding now on Sunday. I say we, we'd uh, it'd be Sunday tea when we had a, a pudding, which right. is, I say. But never a mince pie. We'd never a mince pie, but you wouldn't necessarily have it after that. might be a middle of the afternoon job. 
You know what I mean? I, I think mince pie is not constrained by time. <laughs> you know, it's it's freelance. It can, it can be at any any time. You can have it for breakfast, couldn't you? Really? Oh yeah, I could. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right then. When I've got a freelance mince pie inside the time capsule for you, which is brilliant. Okay, that's your first thing. So, uh, Henry, what's number two? Uh, number two is uh, a picture which I, I've got here. It's a picture of my mum, a photo of my mum. Now, it, it is an artefact in that it physically exists. Now, uh, a lot of photos nowadays don't exist. They're, they're in the internet. Yes. But this this was the only picture we had of my mum. My mum died when I was 11. And um, a kind man that used to come and sell us clothes actually framed it this is not the frame this is a, this is a um, a copy of it mm. and so it nearly didn't exist you know it could have got lost mm. but thanks to mr chambers i shall name him who used to come and sell us clothes on the on the never never <laughs> we've got it as a uh, a physical attribute and we've got a, a an image of my mum now um as i say she had five kids the image is actually her when she's 21 she's very beautiful in that picture Thank you. I, I think she's very beautiful. Obviously, uh, I'm a little bit biased. But uh, the the strange thing is, if you imagine an 11-year-old, the only image that they've got to look at is a 21-year-old. Mm. So uh, it's it's slightly distorted. Now, since then, we, we've got, uh, from relatives, we've got some other images of my mum. And, uh, and as I say, having five kids, I think she died at the age of 39, Um same as Dylan Thomas. Uh, uh, hmm. Still very young, as we know, but certainly not 21. Did you know at the time what she died of? Oh, yeah, she died of a car crash. Oh, Lord. Uh, I remember being told I was, uh, it was uh, uh, like a Friday afternoon and we had double games. And so I was keen to go and play football. And uh, the vicar, uh, uh, I know you've played many vicars in your time. <laughs> uh, um, the vicar was uh, in the house and he never and would never come to the house. And uh, so I, I remember it being a bit strange. And uh, my, my elder brother Dave, uh, who, who's uh, died now, but uh, he was saying, you, "You can't, you can't go and play football." And I was going, oh, "I want to go and play football." Uh, and then my dad came in uh, and uh, took us both, uh, myself and my elder sister Linda, on his knees and said, uh, "Your mum's uh, dead." And, um, and my sister went ballistic, um, as only a, a sort of a, a gangly teenage girl can can do you know arms and legs flying everywhere and uh, and I sat there not understanding it at all not uh, so it wasn't I think till a couple of days later when I I was sitting on um, my mum's bed that I actually um, I actually uh, thought about it uh, and and understood Mm. what had happened Mm. and I would say that's the single biggest uh, change in, in my life because before then, um, I was very gregarious and uh, very much, I'd probably end up as a uh, fruit and veg seller because uh, my mum had a fruit and veg business. Uh, and, um, and then afterwards, I read a lot and, uh, of course, became a, a, a poet. So um, as a, a, a moment to remember, uh, that uh, was, as I say, a, a, a huge, a huge change. And so, my from eleven onwards, my uh, teenage years were different than I'd expected. Yeah. Oh God, that's traumatic. That's well. I mean, I know lots of people go through these traumas, but individually, of course, it's as you say, life changing, absolutely life changing. And it's strange to think of yourself. 
I think, as the person that that didn't happen to, as the person that where your mother didn't die in that car crash and you become a fruit and veg seller. I'd probably be very happy yeah. uh, as that, you know. Uh, but um, what I found, I don't know whether you found this, and it probably, it probably applies to you as well. You don't have to uh, say, but uh, what I found is almost everybody in the creative industries that I've come across, and I've come across hundreds of people, have some moment in their childhood or their teenage years where they've stepped back and instead of being the centre of attention, like I, you know, and and living life in the moment, like I would do when I was playing football, they've stopped and they've looked at the world from the outside hmm. and tried to understand the world and tried to understand their place in it. And I think what a lot of creativity is is that conversation with yourself yeah. as to try and understand what the world's about and and uh, and how it all works and certainly uh, uh, death can bring that on but uh, illness uh, parent leaving uh, all sorts of things can bring mm. it on. yeah i don't think i've ever analyzed it but i know that my childhood when i look back on it was fairly traumatic it was quite violent was that you being violent uh, michael well i was as a result of being in a violent yeah. environment all the time yeah. uh, i think my parents would be upset if they were still alive and heard me say that yeah. but there's no doubt in my mind that we were hit a lot i mean and really quite violently i remember my father and this is really sad memory i remember my father coming in waking me up to spank me as a small boy, being woken up and seeing my dad, and then him having to, him, he was crying, and he said, "You know, I've got to, uh, I've got to hit you," because I'd been told when your father comes home, he's going to smack you. And they, I think they, they go deep those things. I think um, if I go back to, uh, and I don't think uh, parents back in the day were any different than they are now, but I think there was a, an emphasis on duty an emphasis on uh, doing the right thing, mm -hmm. on following the rules. And so it, it was, I think, it, it, certainly uh, when I, I was, I, you know, I was disciplined. Uh, it, was, it was about not upholding the, um, the laws and traditions. Yes. And it's quite strange, isn't it, because we lead these days of parenting, and certainly our generation has passed it on. I, I don't know about the, the very young ones, but... Um, more from an idea of love mm -hmm. rather than discipline. Yes. Well, I think they thought that that discipline was love. I think they thought that yes. they were showing you love by teaching you how to behave. Yes, yes. and letting the side down. Yeah. You're letting the side down, which is uh, uh, very strange, isn't it, really? Um, mm. And I, I think I think maybe it's to do with uh, the aftermath of the war, you know, where everybody... Uh, you know, had to do their bit and it was a sort of a team effort and uh, and there was that, that sort of thing. Um, I know that even now, um, I know some old people who it's the presentation of doing the right thing and being right. And, you know, um, you know, it's, it's the old thing of uh, uh, nice shiny shoes, but holes underneath mm -hmm. that sort of uh, being seen to be a valid member of society is key yes so i, I think for, i think for me i, I started off uh, um I, I had a job at uh, fine fair uh, which for for those younger <laughs> viewers is uh, like uh, uh, little without the glamour <laughs> then I, uh, I i got a job as an insurance broker very steady very you know basically the careers people said to me it's either um 
banking or insurance for you, young man. Yeah. My, my dad worked at Rally and my brother worked at Rally and there was an expectation that I might work at Rally, but I, was a, I, I, I did all right. Uh, I got six O-levels. So for, around my way, which was basically skinheads and grebos, <laughs> uh, uh, six O-levels meant, meant you were Einstein. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it was an office job. Uh, so I took my head down and, and worked hard and learned all the office trade, uh, if there is such a thing, uh, and became the manager of an office uh, in Hull. And this was around 1976. Uh, so I was 20. I was born in 56. So I was 20. And, of course, punk it. Mm-hmm. And when uh, punk and new wave it, I was head of an office dealing with people who were in their fifties. So everybody I spoke mm. to was much older than me. And, um, I, I got a house, uh, and I got my knives in the knife bit and my forks in the fork bit. And I, I got my furniture <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and I was very old. I was a very old 20 year old. And, um, of course the record too much, too young came on the radio. And I went to see, uh, in, in hall, there's a cinema called Cecil. Which is a great cinema, Cecil the Cinema. I went to see Animal House, um, if you remember that film. Yeah. And they were older than me. If you look at the actors, they're, they're, they're more than 20. And, uh, and they're having fun. And I remember thinking, what on earth am I doing? I've basically lived my life already. But it was that thing of, that we were talking about, of the doing the right thing and discipline. And, and, uh, and, and I'd bought into it and I'd, I'd, I'd done it. But I'd done it by the age of 20. So so when punk came, I was ready to say, well, what else is there? Uh, and so um, I retired from uh, insurance <laughs> uh, and cashed in my pension uh, and uh, and tried to become a writer. I went to live with my eldest sister, Linda, in Nottingham and just wrote as much as I can. Now, I wrote, this is going to sound bonkers, but I wrote five chapters of a novel uh, where a museum comes to life at night no i did i wish i'd have kept it i abandoned it because i thought it was a little bit childish Uh, (laughs) um but uh, i i enjoyed the writing and so so from then onwards from too much too young in animal house from then onwards the idea of responsibility you know was always balanced yeah it was always you've got to live life and so I, i had an adventure uh, as um, you you do, you've not got a proper job either, have you? No, nope, never. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my dad always always say. When are you going to get a proper job? <laughs> uh, probably work two hours a week and earn more than you can earn at rally, but uh, it yeah. was not a proper job. No, no, me too. My mother, for all of her life, every job I ever got, she would say to me, "Are they paying you?" <laughs> Bless her. Yeah. So did you start writing poetry straight after your mum's death or, or shortly uh, after? I was probably about 14. Mm. Uh, so we'd, we'd done a little bit of poetry at school. But I tell you what it was. It was Spike Milligan that, that got me into it. So I was a big Monty Python fan. And uh, and then I, I read every comedy book there was in the library and, mm. and I bought loads. So anything from James Thurber, uh, Offnung, all the sort of old grey books that you get in the, in the library, all, all those. And then your Monty Pythons and uh, uh, all the mash series you know and spike milligan had all these little books of verse mm. so i read those and i thought oh they're they're, they're quite uh, interesting and uh, you know I, I can probably do a few of those and then i read uh, spike milligan wrote a book called small dreams of a scorpion that came out by the time i was about 14 and i remember crying at uh, um, a couple of the poems and thinking he's so funny 
and yet it can move me. And I love that. There was something um, that you didn't get in a lot of comedy books. And and I I was very struck by that idea that you could be funny and you could elicit emotion. So I, I got more into poetry then. So I started reading the Liverpool Poets, uh, who are, I think are brilliant. Um, and there were some other great poets around at the time, like uh, Adrian Mitchell, I read all the, I went, so I went to the library and uh, I, I, I get out all the Jonathan Cape books because Jonathan Cape always had a photograph on the front cover. <laughs> so it, it looked modern. It looked, you know, like this, like, you know, the sixties and seventies uh, as opposed to pre thirties. Mm. Uh, so mm. I read as much as I could of those and I started writing my own and obviously, you know, a lot of music around that time. Uh, I got a sort of poetic, uh, you know, sort of progressive rock, if you like, I got a, a poetic feel to it. So in a way, sort of lyrics, but not. I mean, it's interesting, you could easily have gone down the route of saying, well, I'm going to join a band and I'll be the lyricist. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I have no sense of timing. My, my dad was a drummer in a jazz band, but I have no sense of time, so I couldn't be a drummer. My brother, elder brother, played uh, the guitar. Uh, he, he had a, uh, uh, there was him and another bloke, they were called the No Can Duo. <laughs> <laughs> and he used to do all the pubs and I can't play guitar. He tried to teach me four in the morning once at four in the morning. Uh, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't get the hang of it. Uh, um, I can't sing. I have actually sang uh, on pack to three when I was on pack to three um, to 3.4 million viewers. Uh, I actually sang a song and played the kazoo, uh, which give you an idea of the song. And uh <laughs> My brother, God bless him, who uh, was a brilliant singer, uh, you know, um, probably paid to a maximum of 200 people in, mm. in a pub with kids sliding along the floor as he's singing. Uh, <laughs> he always used to say when he, he saw me, he'd, he'd, he'd see me go and do a, a gig, uh, you know, and I'd have a bit of paper with my set list. Uh, and he'd say, is that it? <laughs> I'd say, yeah, and he'd say, well, I have to get the amp, the, the guitar. You know, and all the all the wires and everything, and pl- plug it all in, and see. So you just go on with a bit of paper. Mm. I think I think I chose well there, Michael. To be honest, you did, and I have to say, you've always applied that to all the comedy you've been involved in. I think the idea that uh, comedy with a bit of heart, with a moment of tragedy, in fact, in it, is better comedy. Yeah, I think I think there's a thing, um, you know, I mean, we worked together on uh, uh, Nighty Night mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think with a lot of the uh, comedies, uh, you're trying to say something over and above the joke. Um, it's a little bit like salt or sugar uh, comedy in a way, in that if you wet it on its own, it's not very satisfying, but but you sprinkle it onto a bit of drama, you sprinkle it onto um, a bit of substance, and it makes that better. Mm. I think that's probably why your shows have such longevity. It's why people can watch them again and again, because you're always finding that little moment where somebody's eyes flick to sadness. Steve is a master of it, and so was Caroline Ahern, yeah. that thing where you, you, know, you think of Ricky and all sorts of people. They have that skill to be extremely funny and then just for a moment just show the sadness in their eyes. Yeah, well, I think I think we crave stories and we crave resolution to stories. I mean, if you think of how many stories we actually watch, you know, uh, in a week, in a month, in, in a year, throughout his life, you know, uh, we digest them, uh, you know, nearly as much as we do food. 
Uh, you know, so we so we must have a need for them, and mm. I, I think we need them. I think we need comedy as well. Uh, I, I read um, uh, Freud's jokes in their relation to the unconscious uh, when I was younger. I don't know whether you've ever read it. I haven't. No. Some of the, some of the jokes are in German, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I wouldn't recommend trying them on stage. Uh, um, the gist of it is about four hundred pages. But I'll give you the, the gist of it uh, that, that I gathered uh, from it was that we laugh because we recognise our own imperfection mm. and do you know i love that mm-hmm. i absolutely love that the idea that that we're helping people by laughing we're helping people to come to terms with their own imperfection because it's something we all have to do it's a it's a strange thing that where society bombards us with these images of all these people who are doing better than us you know bungee jumping and you know ski boarding and you know having a great life mm. uh, apparently rather than uh, sitting watching telly eating some argan which is what I consider having a great life. <laughs> and uh, we can feel inadequate. I, I went to a, a psychiatrist once, um, and uh, the psychiatrist said uh, that they'd been in business for 30 years and that everybody had the same problem. Wow. And I remember thinking, that, that's, oh, that, that, no, that can't be right. That can, that's too simple. It's too simple. And he said, uh, everybody thinks they're not good enough. Mm. And it is simple when you think about it. Mm. That is the root of 99.9% of problems. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that, that was a game changer for me. But, uh, no, I, I loved being in comedy and, and working. And uh, um, obviously I started off uh, doing poems and I, I, I was given a, a programme called Packet of Three. Mm-hmm. And um, that brings me to my next uh, object, actually. Lovely. Well, we move on from your mum's beautiful photograph, and which goes into the time capture as your second item. So let's have number three then. Right, as is the way with podcasts of this length, we have to interrupt it for a small ad break. The oil that keeps the podcast wheels turning. So, thanks for listening. We'll be back in a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Welcome back. Right, let's get straight back to Henry Normal and discover what else he's chosen from his life to put in a time capsule. So, uh, number three is uh, my uh, uh, wedding ring to my wife, Angela. Yeah. And uh, I've no idea where it is. <laughs> like most men. So if you could get that back for me, that would be lovely. <laughs> it's in a drawer somewhere, it yep. is the thing. Um, so I met Angela up in uh, Manchester, and I was working on the Mrs. Merton show at the time. So, so I'd, had a, I'd had a show um, called Packet of Three, mm. and uh, it was, it was funny, it was originally called um, Normal Services. Because I, I was approached in uh, in Edinburgh, it was the John Blair Film Company, mm. and they'd asked uh, John Egley if he wanted a show. And John Egley's brilliant, as you know. Yeah. And he said that no, he didn't. <laughs> I don't think he. I mean, I, I've never spoken to him about this, but I don't think he quite uh, trusted TV people at the time. And uh, you know, there's some understanding of that. Uh, so I said, yeah, why not? Uh, so I, I was up there with Atty Ridge doing uh, 30 shows. And I won, uh, Michael, now this is not something I would normally admit, but I, I won the, in fact, I'm the only winner of the Daily Mail Young Comedian of the Year. <laughs> now, that's a weird one, isn't it? I've never told Steve this. Uh, uh, he'd probably uh, uh, divorce me or something if I, if I told him. But, but um, uh, the, the, just before the Perrier gave, I think uh, Ariel got the first one into the Young uh, uh, Perrier award. Um, the year before, the Daily Mail come up with this idea of having a Young, uh, and, and they gave it me. And then, of course, when the Perrier uh, had theirs, they, they didn't do it anymore. No. So I'm, I'm the the one and only uh, <laughs> a winner of this award. So I must have been, uh, as I must have done all right in a, in a mainstream sort of way. And anyway, I was I was offered this, thing. and I said, well. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, what's the show? And they said, uh, well, we were thinking you'd tell us that. And I, I said, all right, okay. Uh, and I thought, I can't I can't do a, a, an old show on my own. Uh, so I said, uh, well, let's do The Muppets, but with real people, and I'll be the Kermit character. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll get Frank Skinner, because I love Frank Skinner, uh, and uh, he's very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you got, you got you remember back at the time, Frank Skinner was uh, um, not alternative in, in the way a lot of people were, you know, very left-wing. Frank, uh, you know, used to do, um, uh, for want of a more technical term, knob gags, <laughs> uh, um, which used to, I used to find hilarious. So I said, let's get uh, Frank as the Gonzo character or the Fozzie Bear. Yeah. And, and I wanted Linda Smith, who uh, I, I love to bits, mm. uh, to be the uh, Miss Piggy, shall we say. Uh, anyway, they they decided that uh, Linda Smith was too much like me in that, you know, she was very wordy or whatever. And, and they wanted Jenny Eclair. And I'd not met Jenny Eclair before, but as soon as I met her, I mean, she's absolutely brilliant, full of energy and, uh, you know, very, very funny. Um, so it was quite a cartoon sort of uh, show yeah. in that we were playing exaggerated versions of ourselves. And um, I enjoyed doing the show. Uh, so we got 3.4 million viewers which these days you'd kill for. But I remember walking around thinking, oh, I've not done very well. I've not done very well. It's that thing of not thinking that you're good enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably in the top 10 rated shows of BBC Two and Channel Four at the time. Yeah. But um, I was a bit um, disenchanted with it. But we, um, the, when they did a second series, they sacked me off my own show, which uh, <laughs> was uh, very strange. And I was very proud that we actually gave a lot of people their first, um, you know, because there's a lot of acts that were on, like Dave Gorman, and even Steve, his first actual character 
that he did as opposed to you know his, his impressions mm-hmm. uh, on national TV was on that show he, you know he, he played uh, somebody purporting to be my brother but was actually Frank's brother you know so so I, I think we did six shows of all 45 minutes each and we we had three or four acts on each show so um yeah it was, it was a great learning curve for everybody doing that show mm. anyway I, I, I was sacked from the show because uh, I, I i think i was a bit too chummy uh Mike. i think that's what he was <laughs> at the time yeah you, you had to be a bit cool and, and I'm I'm more your Bernie Winters, uh, you know. Well, well, more your Snorbits, to be, to be honest. <laughs> At times, Mike Mike Winters, which is the the least fun uh, of the three. Uh, um, but mm-hmm. I still like I like all them old uh, comedians. Uh, you know, there's no edge to them. Uh, was the thing, and uh, so I think I was a bit uncool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I took a back seat and uh, said I'd be a writer as opposed to a performer. And Caroline got a show, the Mrs. Merton show. So um, she asked me to write on that. And uh, there was me, Craig Cash and Dave Gorman mm. writing on that. And uh, and then Steve asked me to write his poor calf with him. So I, I was actually working, strangely enough, on two shows at the same time. <laughs> and I did that for, you know, about 15 years where, where I'd, I'd work with Steve and Caroline. So I'd work nights, I'd work um, weekends, I'd work in my lunch hour, uh, trying to balance doing two shows at the same time. Mm. It's sort of why I got out of production. <laughs> <laughs> For a short while I was in production at Granada yes. Television. Do you want to become a producer, they said. And I said, can yes. I still act? And they said, no, no, you can't act yeah. and be a producer. And as we've discovered since, you bloody well can. Well, you can, you can. I I, I sort of, because uh, I was doing so much, I had to put the poetry on one side. So, I, I you know, I'd spent about 25 years not doing the poetry obviously I'm, I'm back doing it now mm. um but i enjoyed I, I enjoyed sitting in a room with uh, caroline and craig uh, and dave gorman and having a laugh yeah it, it was great and we're being paid to have a laugh uh, um, and sitting with uh, steve and having a laugh and uh, uh, you know uh, it, it seemed it seemed uh, odd that we we're having such a laugh uh, and and yet you know obviously because the, the shows were doing well um, we were being paid uh, paid well. Mm-hmm. So uh, Dave went off to to do uh, his own thing, and he's become brilliant. And uh, and then we wrote the Raw Family. But around this time, I met uh, uh, Angela uh, uh, was the thing, and that gave me a stability that I felt uh, my own life was you know sort of secure. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a lot easier to uh, to put myself into work and and I felt there's a thing in there when you when you find a soulmate that um you're building something as opposed to you know sort of sailing from place to place you're actually you know in a place and, and you're building something so for, for me the wedding ring uh we only wore it uh for the wedding ceremony mm-hmm. uh, because angela and i don't wear any pendants rings or anything but we thought it's this thing about doing the right thing again. We thought we, we, we ought to have one. So we wore it for the day and then put it in a drawer and, and, and lost it. Yeah, Henry, I've always thought that what's impressive is that you, unlike a number of top executives, and I will give you that title, you're not over-impressed with yourself. <laughs> well, I, I think when we started Baby Cow, so so after, after I'd done the Royal Family, um, uh, Steve gave me uh, the option of writing a film, which became the parole officer. And Caroline and Craig said, will you come and do the second series? And, and I chose to do the film. 
And in, in retrospect, uh, although the royal family went on to be, a, you know, an institution and, and brilliant, mm. um, doing the film meant that Steve and I started uh, Baby Cow um, production company. And, and I loved building uh, Baby Cow because uh, it meant that, again, I was dealing with uh, people who wanted to uh, have a laugh, but a lot of young people, which keeps you young, working with young people. And really, it was my job to get the best out of them. And what I tried to do was I tried to be the producer that I wanted when I was their age. You see, when I was on Packet 3, because there was dark drapes, they made me wear a pink jacket. Now, I'd never wore a pink jacket up to that point, and I've never wore a pink jacket. I've nothing, nothing against pink. I think pink's a lovely colour. I'm more of a goth by nature, so I'm, I'm, I'm more, you know, I'm more dark and gloomy, more, more Nick Cave-ish. And so, you know, I didn't feel comfortable. Of course, the other thing is my material at that point was um, I do uh, serious poems and I do funny poems. Some were short and some were long. But when you get to television, they they only need the short, funny ones. Mm -hmm. So the balance of what you do then becomes more lightweight than you'd see me if you actually saw me do an hour on stage. Mm. So what I did with Pacto 3 is I took on board that I'd felt uncomfortable doing it and I said, right, what is it you want to do? And don't try and find out what other people, what do you want to do? And let's make that happen. So um, the first person we rang was Julia Davis because we'd worked with her on Steve's tour mm. and, uh, you know, knew she was brilliant. Uh, to a certain degree, we had to work with young people because we were fairly young ourselves. Um, and I think we were the first ever working class producers and you were definitely the first that hadn't gone to Oxford or Cambridge. I think so, yeah. Mm. And and so so there, there was a, a a sense that we had to prove ourselves, and a sense that you know we couldn't go to uh, you know uh, the established comic actors and say come and work for you know a, a couple of upstarts like me and Steve. <laughs> um, but going to people that we'd worked with uh, that were younger, like uh, Julia, that was great. So we we spoke to Julia, and she said, "Well, I've got a mate uh, called Rob Bryden. Do you, you want to meet him?" And we said, oh, all right then. And he came round and he got a tape in his hand that he'd done at 10 minutes. Uh, and um, it's called Marion and Jeff. Mm. And we put it in the television, uh, this little pilot. And um, Steve, at the end of it, was looking out that window. And I was looking out the other window because we both had a tear in his eye. Uh. And we, we didn't, you know, we felt slightly, you know, sort of embarrassed. Didn't want to catch each other's eye. And we said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can do that. <laughs> uh, so so we had two projects. We had uh, uh, Marin and Jeff and we had Human Remains. Which is still, to this day, one of my favourite comedy shows of all time. And it's a brilliant show. And they, they do these six characters. And uh, what was great was that we were helped by the BBC because the BBC were very keen to uh, help Steve at that time. I don't think they were that bothered about me, to be honest with you. But, <laughs> you know, uh, somebody had to do the uh, um, the proper work whilst Steve did the, the, the more uh, extravagant uh, stuff. <laughs> but we were very keen that the first show would not be uh, Steve Coogan show it would be somebody else so so we we made these two shows and they both won RTS awards and it was a lovely moment I remember sitting with Julia Davis sat next to me and uh, Jane Root the head of BBC2 on the other side of me and I felt like Julia's dad at that <laughs> point uh, it was quite a lovely feeling to have helped somebody to this point where you know they're, they're picking up an RTS award and um 
I would say that's one of the loveliest moments of, of my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julia getting that uh, award and Rob got a, an award as well for Marion and Jeff. So um, we were off and running at that point and uh, we made over 450 comedy shows, a dozen films and uh, all, all manner of stuff like uh, animations and um, just lots of, tried lots of different things, mm. uh, a few radio series and stuff like that. Um, so I was I was at Baby Cow for 17 and a half years before I, I retired. Yeah. But I, I, I loved it to bits, and I, I, I loved all the people that we, uh, that we worked with. Um, very often coming and doing their first ever television, Mm. I mean, if you think about uh, some of the household names, we did a show. There, there was a point, I'll tell you, so there was a point where I thought in the first two years where I thought we were going to collapse because we were doing scripted comedy and we didn't have any scripts. <laughs> now, that's classic for a scripted comedy uh, business. You need scripts. <laughs> and uh, we'd done the first two shows. and We did uh, a show which I wrote the script with Graham Duff, who was a main writer, and Steve, which was uh, Dr. Terrible. So we'd spent a lot of time doing that. And when we came out the back of that, I'd not got another show to make because we hadn't <laughs> any scripts because we'd been spending this time doing that. So uh, I'd taken on some employees by this time. So I thought, well, what are we going to do? And I got a, a meeting with uh, the head of BBC Three, Stuart Murphy. And I went to bed and I, I went to bed in my suit. I just pulled the clothes over me uh, <laughs> and I just got, got home. And, and I thought, how am I going to survive? How am I going to survive this? And I thought, that's a good name for a, a show. How, how am I going to survive? So I thought, well, I know, what, I know what we'll do. So I went to see Stuart Murphy and I said, I've got this show called How to Survive. And it's How to Survive uh, Weekends, How to Survive Parents, How to Survive Crime and everything. And what we do is we get 50 stand-up comedians and that have never been on television and we film them in different locations. We put some music where I get, I get from Fatboy Slim's company uh, and we'll get some animation and we'll make like a, a, a real sort of uh, uh, funky mix of uh, stuff. And we'll, we'll put that uh, on BBC Three and you'll get 50 new comics on BBC Three that have not been. So we got uh, John Bishop, <laughs> Jimmy Carr, Alan Carr, Robin Ince, uh, just loads of people that are now household names. Yeah. That was the the first show. That's the astonishing legacy, isn't it? When you look back, you think to yourself, oh, my word, all those people, how would they have got on otherwise? Because there was a closed-door system almost for people like that. It was odd. It was odd. But, I mean, BBC Three was uh, a breath of fresh air and Stuart Murphy uh, was up for taking a chance. A- after I made that show, he, I-, I said to him, uh, I said, I could do the same show cheaper with poets <laughs> and he said all right then so i got uh lem Sisse, john cooper clark all my favorite poets uh, in the country all the, the ones that i knew could uh, uh, perform um and i did uh, some shows with that and mm-hmm. then uh, stuart uh, god bless him when he saw that he said do you think you could do shakespeare and I said, what, the soliloquies? Uh, he said, yeah. I said, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get some, like, young actors in. So I got, I got all the young actors, you know, uh, uh, Ralph Little and people like that. Um, uh, people you wouldn't think of, uh, Alistair McGowan, Mira Sayal, I think, did one. Doing all these Shakespeare soliloquies. And, and we did it as, like, a stream of consciousness. So they had a theme to each show. Um, and by the time I'd made those three shows, 
we'd got some scripts. <laughs> so, so we were able then to make a scripted show because we'd, you know, I'd spent uh, nearly a year doing the um, the other shows. <laughs> so, in fact, that old adage of if you're not busy, look as if you're busy. <laughs> That's right. Well, do do something. Yeah. One of the other highlights for me was uh, we won a, an international award for Moonboy, um, uh, international Emmy uh, for Moonboy, which uh, was glorious as well. You know. I say you, you don't you don't think that these things are within the possibility, you know, and and then when they are, and obviously when we made uh, Philomena, which I was a, a producer on, you know, and it got nominated for four Baftas, I thought actually, Michael, at that point, I thought I'd peaked. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, I think it made over 150 million worldwide, uh, so I thought that's probably going to be the biggest thing I've worked on. <laughs> and did it did it cover Judy Dench's wages? You know, she was gorgeous. I, when I first met Judy Dench, I said to her, um, I said, uh, Judy, uh, um, I've uh, written for you. I wrote you a sex scene. <laughs> she said, no, no, darling, no, darling. I, I've never done a sex scene in my life. I said, you have. It was for BBC Nature. And I had to write the sex life of a slug. <laughs> and I, I, I remember writing like four pages of this stuff. And she read it so slowly that I had to knock a page off. So, uh, you know, I got a, I've still got a, a page of slug sex jokes <laughs> knocking around somewhere. It's on you. And she's, oh, yes, darling, yes, yes. So I, my claim to fame is I've actually written the only Dame Judy Dench sex scene. She's a fantastic woman. Oh yeah, she's 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 quality and and fun and you know yeah. and uh, I think that that film uh, I think it, you know it's Steve's best film and he, mm. he he worked really hard and Jeff Pope uh, who co-wrote it uh, with him worked yeah. very hard. It's a, it's a great film and the the, the testament to it was that uh, um, the woman Philomena herself loves the film. Great. You know, she got to meet the Pope as well. Really, Steve took her to meet the Pope, and considering the story yeah. is uh, is quite a moment. Did he ask the Pope if he knew where your ring was? <laughs> that's what you need. No, but that's a, that, you know that's a very good tie-in. I, I love a back reference. So <laughs> thank, thank you very you. much. <laughs> All right, well, we'll take that then and put it in as your third item. So let's move on. Yes. Now, I, I should mention my the, the one I want to lose, or do we do that at the end? Let's do it now, and then let's get that out of the way. Well, the, the one I'd like to lose is the uh, Nitco. Do you remember the Nick comb? It was like a metal comb that was very thin slits in it. So, so the um, the prongs of the comb were very sturdy. <laughs> um, at school, you had to line up uh, when the knit nurse came, and she'd uh, you know check you for them. And if if you got any lice, I think they called the eggs of the uh, they they comb them out, and you get some stuff to put on. Now at school, I'd never got knits at school. Uh, and um, but I remember um, about the age of 13 my mum had died and uh, my dad was taking us to see his dad so we'd get dressed up you know in his best clobber and uh, my dad looked in me and it was, it was all flaky and um, a lot of the kids along the road had had like skinhead cuts uh, so it became skinheads became very popular because you'd have less nits. Yeah. But I, I didn't have that. I had a short back and sides. And um, he thought, I've got nits and, and we're going to see his dad. And and this whole thing about, you know, doing the right thing and looking uh, the thing. So he got the nit comb and he scraped my scalp raw. And what I realise now is it wasn't nits, it's psoriasis. Uh. 
So we'd scraped off all the psoriasis from my head very painfully. Mm. Now, he's not to know this, and I don't resent it, but but I didn't find out I'd got psoriasis till about uh, eight years ago uh, and when I, I got some on my back. And then it, all the spots that I'd had as a teenager uh, on my legs became apparent that this was something I've had all my life. Um, so it, it, we were talking earlier about this idea of coming to terms with imperfection. Mm. And and so I, I think for people in the, are in the communications business, I think it's good for us to, to let people know that we have imperfections and that, that it's natural. I mean, a lot of people have, have psoriasis. You know, a lot of people have it far worse than, than me. It doesn't change anything of you other than it's just a, a, an irritant that uh, that you've got. Mm. Um, but people do tend to, uh, if they have any imperfection, they tend to hide it, don't they? They tend to, uh, you know, not admit to it in in some way, as though you know, as though it's like the plague or lurgy <laughs> or, or something like that. Rather like your dad would have thought. I mean, clearly, yeah. you getting nits or him thinking you had nits, in a way, you would have been to an extent to blame for that. Yes, yeah, yeah, because because I'd been near somebody who got nits, mm. as though you know, as though that is the the way you work as a kid. You know, I won't go near that person; they might have nits. <laughs> uh, you know, it wouldn't occur to you, would it? No, the nit comb went completely out of fashion for a while because they developed shampoos that would just you yeah. you, know, you just put them on. Didn't need to do the nit comb, so nobody had a nit comb for. I suppose probably through the 80s, 90s. And then, of course, yeah. the nits became immune to these shampoos. And now the, oh, dear, yeah, the, now the nit comb, if you want to find nits on a child now, there's only one way. You put some conditioner in their hair so it's nice and smooth, which was a kindness they never showed us, I seem to remember. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you comb through and see if there's anything on it. And so the comb has come back. I, I don't think I ever had any conditioner on my ear until I left home. And so that 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 would be the thing that I, I would lose. Yeah. But uh, um, so my final choice. Yeah. Okay. We move on to your final number five. Uh, you'll see behind me uh, some paintings. Yeah. Uh, so these are done by my son, and uh, all my books have my son's uh, um, paintings on the cover, mm-hmm. which I love to bits. He, he paints every day. Um, so my son Johnny uh, is twenty three now. Uh, he is uh, autistic, uh, he's severely autistic, but he loves painting and um, he paints every day. So if you work it out, in a year we've got 365, he's 23. Uh, he started painting when he was about seven. Uh, I have no room in the garage uh, is, is the thing. I have no room in several uh, showers and bathrooms uh, and every bit of the wall in our place is uh, has got his paintings. Um, he, he likes doing big paintings. I, I wish he'd do miniatures because he's costing me an absolute bloody fortune. <laughs> um, but he's a big lad. He's six foot three, and he, he likes to do uh, uh, big paintings. And um, I, I love them to bits. And I love the fact that he enjoys the process of painting. So uh, you, you and I work in the creative industries, and you know, and sometimes it's it's nice when you've done something and you can appreciate it. And sometimes when you're doing it, you can appreciate it. Uh, and the great thing about, uh, uh, I find with Johnny, is uh, when he paints, he dances. And and that love of the actual doing of the thing is so evident that it's made me 
want to enjoy more the process of writing poems, the process of performing poems, process of when are you doing something creative to actually enjoy being in the moment? I wasn't aware of autism particularly for much of my life. And then we did a programme together on Radio 4, I don't know if you remember, but uh, the With Great Pleasure, and I read some of your choices that you picked yes. as the writing that you liked. And uh, I read that piece from... Oh, yes, yes, yeah, The Curious Case of the Dog in the Night. The Curious Case of the Dog in the Night, yeah. And yeah. I remember talking to you about it, and the description you gave to the audience was that yeah. you liked it because it was because your son was autistic. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about autism or... I'd never come across anybody particularly autistic. And now my grandson has autism. Oh, yeah. Uh, not as severely as your son, I would say, but no. it makes him a very particular person. Well, it's, it, you know, I think um, a lot of people have got a degree of uh, autism. They, they've called it a spectrum in the past. Are they calling it a constellation these days? Right. Um, if you think about it, we all have great attributes. Like, I can't swim. My son can swim, right? So in that respect, he's far more... Is achieved far more than others. As I say, I can't play the drums. My dad could play the, the drums. We, we have various areas of skill. Mm -hmm. So Johnny can paint and he can swim and he can uh, do lots of things, but his communication in a verbal sense is uh, not able to, to get uh, the words. There's a, there's a great book by a Japanese lad who's probably in his early 20s now. Um, uh, Naomi, Naomi is his first name. I, I'm, I'm not going to even attempt his second name because I'll get it wrong. But it's called um, The Reason I Jump. And um, he writes uh, about the fact that if he's got the letters in front of him, then he can anchor the words. But if he hasn't got the letters in front of him, he can't communicate. And uh, it's interesting that um, we think sometimes that when somebody can't communicate with us, it means that there's not the stuff going on. Mm. But the great thing is in the book, uh, because he's found this way of anchoring the words, it can tell you what's going on. Now, if you see him, he's very much like my son in that he'll, he'll bounce around, he'll clap, he'll, he'll what they call stim, which is uh, self-stimulating, mm -hmm. uh, um, mm -hmm. as means of controlling the world and controlling his own feelings uh, because it's easy to be over uh, overwhelmed. But when he's got the keyboard in front of him, you realise the complexity of his thought. And, uh, you know, I would say he's as clever as I am, uh, if not more. But you, you only are able to realise that because he's found this means of uh, communication. So um, I find that um, we do find a lot of autism uh, in the various uh, ways uh, that it's presenting itself at the moment all around the country. And people don't yet quite understand how to get the best out of uh, people who are autistic because there's a lot of worth and a lot of something to add to the world in uh, autistic people. Uh, and it's a question of finding a way to utilise that. And I say in my son's case, certainly one part of that is his paintings. So my uh, last object would be uh, one of his paintings. Now, which one? Hmm. That's a very difficult uh, uh, question. I'm going to I'm going to go for for uh, the the cover of my book, The Escape Plan, because this is a huge painting uh, and uh, it's like sort of six foot by six foot. Um, <laughs> so obviously, I couldn't put I couldn't I, my book couldn't be that big. So I've obviously got a miniature version of it. Um, but when when I see it uh, and I look at it, I think that's something I I, I would never. 
I would never be able to do. I would never be able to express myself in that way. And with such boldness, mm. with such courage. Uh, it's funny. Uh, so my son often says things from films uh, as a way of uh, anchoring words. Uh, and, and if you ask him, uh, you know, if you said you've got three wishes, what do you want to wish for? His first wish would always be courage. Huh. Uh, and which he obviously he's got from Wizard of Oz. But I love the fact that that's what's stuck in his mind, that it is courage, because he has got courage. And uh, um, he had an exhibition uh, uh, in Brighton uh, of his work, and uh, it was a huge exhibition, and it was on for a month. And I'm told that more people came to see that exhibition than any exhibition they'd had ever at the gallery. This is the Phoenix Gallery in uh, uh, in Brighton. And I, I love the fact, I've got, I've got a picture of him at the exhibition. Um, it's quite strange, uh, Michael, in that, as I say, he doesn't volunteer communication. He, if you're in a room with him, he'll, you know, he'll sort of be easy, but he won't want to be confronted and he'll edge out. At that exhibition with all his paintings around him, uh, we were going to make an announcement, so we put up a microphone. And I'm flogging some of his books because he's got his paintings in a book. And uh, I can hear him on the microphone. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm thinking this, this is... So he's saying... Hello, 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 hello. And I'm thinking, what's he, what's he doing on that microphone? So, so I go to the microphone and there's all the people, in front, there's about, you know, uh, 180 people in front of him. And you should see on the microphone. Nobody's said to him to, to do this. Uh, and, and as I said, this is somebody that, that would, you know, leave a room uh, if there were too many people in it. And, um, and I, I said, all these people have, uh, have come to see your paintings. Uh, what, what you want to say to them? Uh, and he said, "Thank you," uh, which is uh, again, you know, this is this is as 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 much of a conversation uh, I've ever had with him. Uh, so he, he said, "Thank you," and and uh, and I said, uh, "What what do you what do you think of uh, of, of this exhibition?" Uh, and he said, uh, "Is it good?" <laughs> because very often when you say to him, "Is this good or is it bad?" Right, so he'll pick the first bit of what you've said. Is it good? Which means it's good. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was such a lovely moment. And uh, again, if I think about the the moments in my life, uh, some of the things we've discussed today are the things I'd like to be reminded of when we open this capsule. So certainly, one of my son's paintings would be in there. Yes, but I remember at that time on the radio thinking how proud you were of your son then and uh, and that's not changed at all no no it, you know we all um go through ups and downs and we all have to find uh, courage and uh, it's hard enough i think if you're neurotypical to find courage but if you've got an extra difficulty to to deal with and and this goes for for many people with you know physical and, and mental uh, difficulties and emotional difficulties you know i think we don't realize the amount of courage it takes for people just to get through a day mm-hmm. and one of the things i've been doing with uh, my uh, poetry is to try and tap into uh, this whole idea of life's not made up of all the stuff they're showing you we do on the television all that extreme sports stuff and all the shots of the sunset and you know the the people sipping champagne 
I've I've been in those uh, scenes. I've been at places uh, which can be the loneliest place. You know, if you're sipping champagne at some do and and you're not feeling it and you're not with the people that you love. Um, you know, uh, this podcast that you're doing is quite interesting because it, it makes you examine the memories that you have as to what are the important things. And, you know, things like we've gone through today, things like a, a, a mince pie uh, from being a kid and, uh, you know, uh, uh, a picture uh, and, uh, you know, uh, a painting. They're the symbolism and the what they entail are particular to you mm. and that's what makes them important i think um they're not generalized off the peg absolutely so not. Th- I thank, thank you for uh, inviting me onto the the podcast today and um, making me um reflect well thank you for doing it it's been really lovely to hear it thanks henry you've got a great um uh, ability to, to to do this if you if it was something you wanted to get into you'd be great at it so uh, well that's re- well to, from you i'll take that as a great compliment thank you henry and of course typically my reaction to that immediately is no i'm not good enough <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Henry Normal. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, then perhaps you'd like to dip your toe into the large lake of other Time Capsule-based chats I've had. There are over 150 to choose from so far, and if you subscribe to this podcast, you will be informed whenever a new one is available to listen to. Yes, a person will come round and knock on your door and say that, no, no, it'll be sent to you over the internet. Please take the opportunity to rate this show on your podcast app. You may even want to go the whole hog and write a review. Or you may not. It's not obligatory, but it's always much appreciated. You can find out what we're up to by following me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. And you can download or stream the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify without me chatting all over it. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Right, it's nearly Christmas, so I'm going to order myself one of those festive pizzas you can get round this time of the year. Uh, Not the turkey and cranberry. Nah, don't fancy that. I thought I'd go for the good King Wenceslas. Yeah, it's deep pan, crisp and even. Now, I may have done that joke last Christmas. It's difficult to remember. And anyway, although this episode was released in December, you may be listening to it for the first time in June. That's how podcasts go. In which case, are we having lovely weather at the moment? Slash shit weather at the moment. Delete as applicable. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.